Hi, I'm Larry Castle here with Ken Brown. Thanks for joining us for episode 23 of That's a Good Question. How should Christians relate to the world? Today, Pastor Ken, we're going to discuss something that is really at the heart of living in the world as Christians, and that is how should we relate to the world? Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about the world and the dangers of the world, and yet this is where God has placed us to serve him. So let's start off with some background and the factors that are involved in making this such an important issue for Christians, Pastor Ken. Well, like you said, the Bible does have a lot to say about the world, and what the Bible has to say about the world is uh, really mostly negative. I'll go through some passages that speak of the world. Uh, famously, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, the Bible says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in James chapter 1 and verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So you can see, Bible has a lot to say about the world, but it's not good. Yeah, that, that does tell us what the Bible says are the problems with the world. But as I said earlier, this, this is where God has put us to serve. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, well, when we see how the Bible talks about the world, notice that it's not primarily talking about a place, but rather a philosophy, a worldview, a way of living. The Greek word that's translated world in those passages that I read is cosmos, and it means an arrangement. We get some other English words from that, cosmology, the arrangement of the universe. Uh, I joke that cosmetics is making an arran ordered arrangement out of chaos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I will not repeat that one. <laughs> So when the, when the Bible speaks negatively of the world, it's not talking about the earth, that the earth is a bad place, but rather that it's the arrangement that includes the fallen allegiances and the values and the priorities that are not directed toward God. So one theologian describes the world this way. The world is the thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, at any time current in the world, which at every moment are of our lives, we inhale and again, inevitably exhale. That is, we breathe the world's opinions and values and thoughts through the culture. It's, it's all around us. So how do we live in it 
but not according to its its values. It's Jesus who's the one who, uh, from whom we derive that pithy, in the world but not of the world idea. Many of our, our viewers may have heard that. And that comes from John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying this long, beautiful prayer on the night before he is crucified. And he prays for himself in the opening of the prayer. In the middle of the prayer, he prays for his first followers, the apostles. And then at the end of the prayer, amazingly and, and movingly, he prays for you and me, those of us who he is going to die for the, the next day. Uh, and in that, in that prayer, he says to the Father that his followers, they are, quote, in the world, but they are not of the world. That's John chapter 17 in both verse 11 and then also verse 16. Now, notice the problem with the world is not being in it, but being of it. It does not refer to a place, but rather a false system, a false belief, value, allegiance, priority system. So the of preposition there, being of the world, means the system from which we derive our values and our allegiances and we, we make our priorities. So it's not the preposition in that's the problem. It's the of part, where we derive those things from. So clearly something is wrong with the world, and therefore we have to be avoid being contaminated by it. But, but how do we do that? Well, Jesus goes on in that prayer to actually give the, the answer. He says, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. And then he goes on to say, he asks the Father, sanctify them by the truth your word is truth. That's verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart. Make holy. The word holy means to be separate, to be set apart. So sanctify means to be made holy. And Jesus is asking the Father to do that with his followers. But he says the means by which that happens is the word, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. So the solution to the problem of worldliness is holiness, being set apart. But again, notice it's not being set apart physically because it's not the in preposition that's the issue. It's of. It's being set apart. It's being separate in terms of our values, in terms of our allegiances, in terms of our priorities. So the solution to the problem of worldliness is holiness. It's to be set apart in those ways, from the values, allegiances, and priorities of the world. Got it. So to avoid being of the world, we need to, in some way, uh, be set apart from it, be separate from it. So it sounds like we do need in some way to leave the world, or at least to somehow come up with a cocoon to protect us from it. And that is how some Christians approach this, right? It is. It is, unfortunately, how some Christians uh, approach it. Uh, because I say it's unfortunate because the Bible does make clear that the solution is not to remove ourselves from the presence of the world system. I mean, here's an example of that. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he is telling them to deal with an issue that they have in that church that has become known to him. And it's uh, a, a very uh, heinous issue, a sin that's being engaged in openly 
by someone who is a part of that church and they are just allowing it to go on. So Paul is writing them and they're saying, you've got to deal with this. You cannot tolerate unrepentant sin. Now in any church, there's sin, all of us sin. That's not the issue. The issue is open, unrepentant sin, and they're not dealing with it. And he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Now notice what he says, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such a person, just as an aside. And to pause there, that might shock some of our viewers because we uh, have become accustomed to being tolerant of everything and tolerant of sin, even in the church. But you see how the Bible says these things are to be handled. They can be handled lovingly, but they need to be handled directly. And for sure, they need to be handled. But notice in the middle of that, he says, I'm not talking about uh, uh, being separate from the people of this world system. In that case, you would actually have to leave the world and you're in the world. So we indeed are in the world and we're not to seek to be out of the world. We are in it, but we're not to be of it. In, not of. But there are, if you think about it, there are four ways to put those combinations together, taking being in and, and not being of the world. Four ways to relate to the world. Three of them are wrong and only one is right. The first one is you can be both in the world and of the world. Now, who would that be? In the world and of the world. That would be unsaved people. That would be non-Christians. That would be unbelievers. They are in it and they're of it. They are physically located within the realm of the world system, and they derive their values and their uh, allegiances, and, their, and they make their priorities based upon the world system. So that's the first one. That doesn't apply to uh, most of our viewers who are professing Christians, but that's one way. You can be both in it and of it. The second way is this. You can be not in it and not of it. Not in the world and not of the world. Now, what would that be? Not of the world clearly is talking about a, a Christian. This is somebody who derives their values and their allegiances and their priorities, not from the world, uh, but from the Lord. So you're not of. But these people are also not in, contrary to what Jesus said. You're in the world, contrary to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. These are Christians who are not of the world, but they're also not in it. These are isolationist Christians. And throughout church history, you've had this kind of an approach to the Christian life. It's wrong. Uh, but you have the monastic life, monks who cloister uh, themselves uh, away from the world. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, you have the Amish. And we're many of us are fascinated by the lifestyle of the Amish and how to themselves and cloistered within our own community that they that they are. Uh, we're here in Michigan. We have some Amish in Michigan, but we have next door to us in Ohio. Uh, we have a lot of Amish down in Indiana and Shipshawana. Uh, these are tourist spots to go and go and uh, be spectators and see how the Amish live. But then you also have this kind of isolationist tendency just among conservative Christians. Uh, and 
those of us who have grown up in conservative Christian homes, for which uh, I am one and I am very thankful, but one of the tendencies has been to isolate ourselves from uh, the world, from people in the, the world, to take ourselves out of it. And the idea is you take the person out of the world, so then you're taking the world out of the person. But you know, that's not true if you define world properly. World, again, is this arrangement. World is the values and the allegiances and the, and the priorities. So you can take the person out of the world, but still have the values in, in the heart. And many, many a conservative Christian family and conservative Christian church have been devastated to find out that simply sheltering, simply isolating, doesn't remove the sin nature, doesn't remove the tendency toward your own kind of worldliness. So that's a second way, not in and not of. A third way is to not be in, but to be of. <laughs> so you're of the world in the sense that you're deriving your values from the world, but you're not in it. That is, you have created your own kind of parallel world, your own kind of parallel existence with the world. You've withdrawn from it, but you've taken with you in that withdrawal its values. And this would be the worldly Christian. Now, in some ways, that's an oxymoron. In other ways, it's true of all of us. All of us sin, and as genuine believers, we sin. And so we reflect worldly values and allegiances and priorities at times in our lives. That is sin. But th these are people that I'm talking about here that are like that. They are professing Christians, whether they're genuine Christians or not, is the between them and the Lord. But they live in their personal lives and in their churches in a in a worldly sort of way. I'll have occasion to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And then the fourth and final approach is the right one. It's the biblical approach. You're in it. We are in the world system. We are surrounded by it. We are tempted by it, indeed but we are not of it, that we derive our values, our allegiances, and our priorities from God's word. And that's how we're set apart, by the truth, and your word is truth. So the more that we are saturate, saturated with God's truth, and the more that we appropriate it and we make application of it to our lives, then we are gradually set apart from the world system. Let's, uh, let's talk a bit about the two incorrect Christian approaches to the world that you mentioned, um, both of which involved not being in it in some way. Uh, first, you said there's the, the not in and not of that involves isolation, isolationism. What are some dangers to that approach? Yeah, there are several dangers to withdrawing uh, from the world. Withdrawing from the very world into which Jesus has sent us to be his light. Uh, that's the night before he prayed, when he was praying for his followers. He's saying they are in it, and, and this is on purpose, and this is by God's design, but they are not, they are not of it. And so if you try to if you try to reverse that somehow, so that you're not in it, uh, but you are uh, and 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 not of it, but you withdraw yourself from it, then you're not going to be able to carry out the mission that Jesus has given. You can't evangelize if you're not in relationship. 
If you're an isolationist Christian, an isolationist kind of church, you just will not be effective if you don't have relationships with those who need the light that we, we have. And you also can't evangelize effectively. You can't evangelize much at all if you're like this. But, you know, if you have a job and you go out to work, then you haven't isolated completely. You're going to have interactions with people, but you're not going to be effective. You can't evangelize effectively, frankly, if you're just weird. If, if you've taken an approach that we need to be completely different from the world in every, in every respect, then like the Amish, you might find some virtue in, in looking differently. Uh, and you'll just be an oddity, frankly. And there's no particular virtue in that. You don't find that in, in Scripture. You can't evangelize. And then even the times when you do get a chance to evangelize, you can't do it effectively, frankly, if you're just weird. And then there's this false notion that I mentioned a bit ago, that if you take the child out of the world, uh, that you're going to take the world out of the child. And I have seen this. I have seen many people who have been devastated when they came to the realization that, oh, my, the sin nature is in the heart, and we can put all the hedges we want around our children. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should protect our children appropriately, uh, and uh, that's part of parenting wisdom that we teach at our church. But the idea that I'm going to protect my child from influences uh, at all from the world is not the case. They, like we, have been placed here by the Lord to be in the world. And so you see things like the Duggars, you know, the Duggars and, you know, they have this television show and this kind of idyllic, you know, existence for many people at least. And, you know, their own thing all, you know, to themselves there at the, the big house that they built for whatever it is, 19 of them or, or whatever, homeschooling uh, their kids. And then, you know, in the news several years ago, one of them is involved in some just, uh, you know, really ugly kinds of kinds of sin. Uh, so the sin nature doesn't escape anyone. And no matter what kind of isolation you try to provide, there's no way you can, you can get around that. And let me just say to some of our viewers, because I know this would apply to, to some, some in, in our church, uh, our family has homeschooled our kids uh, when they were in elementary school, our two girls who are now grown and married. But we did that for several years, and we did that to great profit, and we enjoyed it, and, we, and we're very glad that we did. And we know many homeschooling families as a result of that, some in our church who do a terrific job with that. It's a great option for a lot of families. And it was for us for a lot, many years. And then we sent our girls to a Christian school from which they graduated. Others in our church have gone to public school. And we don't, as a church, have a policy on any of that, our, other than our policy is what we believe the Bible teaches. Parents are responsible for the education of their children. And you can delegate that to a Christian school. You can delegate a, por a portion of that to the public school, but you're still responsible to oversee that. With homeschooling, you do it directly. And there are many, many advantages to it. But we did notice when we were in that, that homeschoolers tended, many of them, tended to be in this kind of isolationist approach. And I, and I would just warn against that. Be careful about that. Do not be duped into thinking that because you've created this cocoon, as Pastor Larry mentioned earlier, that you your children are not being tempted by the world and finding ways to imbibe in the world and having their hearts lured toward it. And another danger is that we'll fail to be socialized well, and, and our children will live afraid uh, rather than confident in the world. 
You know, I can't interact with those people. I don't even really know those people. I don't even have the, those people in my life. And so it's this kind of dark world outside of my existence. And there can be a fear about even engaging in it and, and being properly prepared to go into the world. Don't believe, uh, you, can, you can come to believe that unbelievers have nothing of value to contribute because it's them and it's us. And only we have anything of value. Listen, we don't need to run and hide from the world. Uh, we can and should be very confident as God's people with his spirit and with his word. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's good. What about the other Christian approach that you mentioned, the not in but of? Uh, if you hear the background noise, sorry, I'm, I'm actually on the road this week and they're noise in a hotel lobby so <laughs> but uh road show. All right. yeah yeah <laughs> traveling with my wife she has a work conference down the hall here and so we got to take a little trip together so that's what the ringing phone and other noises are uh well thanks for thank the lord for the technology and thanks for setting up while you're on the road like that oh, but sure. yeah what are some of the practical consequences of that other approach christian yeah. approach professing christians who are not in the world they kind of have their own parallel existence but the values are still coming from the world so while the other approach in that other approach that i just described you're so different that you're weird and you're ineffective with non-christians with this approach you're so much like the world that you're ineffective really because there's little difference for them to see i mean remember in john or excuse me matthew chapter 5 the sermon on the mount jesus emphasized that there's a difference, that you are the salt of the world, that you are the light of the world. And yet in Christian circles, unfortunately, for a number of decades in our country now, the idea has, has been to become like the world in order to win the world. And this is your typical evangelical Christian uh, today, or your typical evangelical church today, who wants to be cool tries really hard to be liked. You know, so find out, uh, we talked uh, in one of our episodes a few weeks ago about how are God's people to worship when they come together. And we gave some history about how the way worship is done today and many of our churches came to be, it came to be through this, finding out what people like and saying, we're going to give it to you. So you like rock concerts? Well, then church will be like a, a rock concert. <laughs> you know, somebody, somebody joked that, you know, when you do that, you're really not making Christianity better. You're making rock and roll worse because <laughs> we've got these like wannabe bands who are who are performing at churches. So I um, I, uh, I just have to throw in there. I uh, heard uh, a musician recently talking about. I think he comes from a Christian background, and uh, they play a game uh, where they will play a song, and you have to the first one to be able to guess whether it's a Christian artist or not. Uh, wins so within like three seconds they can tell that's oh, a Christian. Yeah, that's not the same kind of chords, the same kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the Bible repudiates this idea of being like the world and giving the world what it wants based upon its values. It repudiates it quite directly in First Corinthians chapter two. It's interesting. A lot of times today, these kinds of Christians and these kinds of churches, they'll quote 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul, again, who wrote 1 Corinthians, he says, 
look, I am serious about evangelism. I'm serious about having good effect on those that God brings in my circle of influence. And so I'm not going to do anything that will unnecessarily harm that uh, evangelistic enterprise. And he lists some of the things that he's given up. He's given up his rights and the things he could do, but he's willing to put them aside for the sake of the gospel. And he says famously in verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So people take that and to say, hey, look, you, you do whatever then. Paul says, I'll do whatever. Well, not quite. You know, Paul says, I'm willing to set aside anything unnecessary, but he does not say, and he does not teach, and the Bible does not teach, that that means to become worldly, to import the world's values into your life or into the life of your church. In fact, in chapter 2, and let me just remind you, I just quoted chapter 9, but let me remind you, chapter 2 comes before chapter 9. <laughs> so, but with chapter 2, he's set the context in which you're to view what he says after that in chapter 9 in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 you know paul says i know what you wanted i know you wanted me to bring to you a form of entertainment for yourself and and i purposefully did not do that uh and i was not going to make the center of attention myself and my rhetoric and my human wisdom and all of that so the bible directly repudiates this idea that we need to find out what the world wants and then give it to them. So you said earlier that uh, we want to be careful not to raise our children to be afraid of the world uh, and to not be properly socialized. So are you saying there then there are good things, redeeming qualities then about the world? There's nothing good about the world as long as we define, again, world the right way as it's presented in the Bible. These values, these allegiances, these priorities. But there are good non-Christian people and there are good aspects of culture. So, so let's break that down a little bit there. First of all, you said that the, well, back up, the Bible says there is no one good and you just said that there are good non-Christians. Let's, let's unpack that. Well, I mean, good. thank you for that. To allow me to clarify it, it's good in a, in a relative sense. The Bible, when it says in uh, Romans 3.10, there's no one good, uh, not even one, no one who does good, not even one, it's referring to good in an absolute sense, that no one does the right thing for the right reason, namely the glory of God, in their natural state. Outside of Christ, no one does that. So no one does anything of ultimate good outside of Christ. It's relative good. Good, good. Yeah, I want to make sure that was clear for everybody. So you said uh, there are good, relative good, then aspects of culture. What's the difference then between the world and culture? Yeah, and I, this gets to a real heart of the matter. That's an extremely important idea. And so, so let's define those two things, world and culture. We've already seen that the world is values, allegiances, priorities, that do not have God at the center. That's what worldliness is. Here's a more succinct, even more succinct definition of worldliness than that. Here it is. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Now notice the modifier before values, fallen values expressed in culture. So that suggests that culture can express non-fallen, non-sinful values. And indeed, that's the case. So, for example, fallen 
Worldly values include things like sensuality, materialism, frivolity, just everything's a, everything's a game. These are expressed in our culture, in our movies, advertising, fashions, our entertainment. We're a culture that is, is so saturated with entertainment that we, in the words of one author, Neil Postman, in a classic book many years ago, Neil Postman, the name of the book is Amusing Ourselves to Death. <laughs> and it was, a, it's a, it was a great book. So worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. And culture is the collective values of a society in its language and its customs and its fashion, its arts and its, and its media. So all worldliness then is bad, but not everything that happens in our culture is necessarily worldly then, right? So, right. so that means there's good aspects of culture then. Exactly. So there can be good aspects of culture because culture is larger than worldliness. Worldliness is a subset of culture. So thankfully, that's the case. For example, in our culture, people get married, even non-Christian people. Now, when they do that, they're expressing values that they're borrowing from the biblical worldview. When they participate in marriage, since it's God's idea. But nevertheless, we're glad that they do because it contributes to the stability and the well-being of, of society. And because all people are made in the image of God, with the ability, therefore, to think and create and conceptualize and beautify, and because God in his common grace uh, mitigates the effects of sin and the fall, that ability, those abilities have not been eradicated. And therefore, all people, even non-Christians, can do good things and contribute to the enrichment of our lives through things like music and movies and books and marriage, and the, the list goes on. That's helpful. That's really helpful. But uh, So we're saying worldliness is a subset of culture, and therefore some things done in our culture are worldly and some are not. And so everyone's wondering now, how, how do you tell the difference? That's, the, that's definitely the right question. You know, finding the difference because we understand there is a difference. Not everything that unsaved, non-Christian people do is worldly. And therefore, worldliness it cannot simply be defined as what non-Christians do. You know, and that's the definition that many of us who've grown up in church, that's the definition that we weren't necessarily taught that directly. You know, most things that we acquire, it's said, are not taught, they're caught. But that is the definition that many of us caught growing up in our, our Christian homes. Yeah, it's important and nuance. It is, and I, and I believe it contributes to an unhealthy fear of not just the world. We should eschew the, the world, properly defined, but also an unhealthy fear of culture. And we withdraw from that as well. So what we have to do is distinguish whether something is expressing fallen values or good values. Remember, worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture, but, but good values can be expressed in culture too, even by unbelievers. Now, they don't do it for God by definition, otherwise they would be Christians. But because they are in the image of God, they can and do produce good things that they borrow from the God that they deny, and yet we, we all benefit. So take fashion. Is a particular style expressing a worldly value? That's the kind of question that we need to ask ourselves. You know, what, what 
dancing in goth. <laughs> well, back when it was around, it might still be around for all I know. I don't know. But it, there was a, a focus on dark and macabre values, not Christian values of life and, and hope. Now, you might say, listen, what you wear is just cloth. God doesn't care. No, God does care. God does care about what we do and how even new, otherwise neutral things that we do and what they communicate and how they affect others. You can read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. Uh, what we wear can communicate our values. So we need to, here's what we got to do. We got to analyze. All right, what's what's that mean? What's the meaning? What are the values behind what I'm doing? What I, in this case, wearing? And then choose to participate or not. So notice we analyze, we think about it. We make a choice to, to please God. Is my lifestyle worldly? Because it expresses an unhealthy focus on, say, materialism. Do my musical choices reflect godly values like life and love? Or do they at least take my thoughts and emotions in those directions? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask and then answer and then choose. This idea that uh, that culture can produce good things, not necessarily worldly, even if they're produced by a non-Christian, can raise lots of questions for people. Um, so, for example, to be good does not mean necessarily to be overtly Christian. You can take music, for, for example. Uh, to be good music, it doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly Christian music with Christian words written by a Christian museum, uh, museum, musician, right? <laughs> no, no, it needs to express values that are in keeping with a God-centered view of things, or aid me in seeing them that way. And because unbelievers are made in God's image, they can and do produce that. I mean, just a couple of examples, and I'm showing my age when I give these, but, you know, James Taylor when he does his, you know, uh, number one hit of all time, you've got a friend, you know, is is that is that expressing something that you know fits into a, a God-centered worldview? The answer to that's yes. You know, when you're down and troubled and you need a helping hand, right? Shower the people you love with love. That's another one of his songs. I I think of a few secular songs that I believe uh, actually demean worldliness. Now I call them secular because they're not. Uh, overtly Christian. They're not uh, sung even by Christians. But again, showing my age, you know, there was a song by Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel. Then he went off and did his own thing. But he had a thing called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. And he has these lyrics, just slip out the back, Jack, make a new plan, stand, don't need to be coy, Roy, just get yourself free, hop on the bus, Gus, don't need to discuss much, drop off the Keeley and get yourself free. And the idea was he was actually a demeaning this idea that you would have these one night stands and then just and then just leave and get yourself free and then go do go do your own thing. Well, you know, guess what? That's true. As a matter of fact, Bob Seeger, you know, Southeast Michigan's own, uh, has a song in beautiful called Beautiful Loser about the restlessness of the human heart. He says he wants to dream like a young man with the wisdom of an old man. He wants his home and security. He wants to live at the same time like a sailor at sea. And then the refrain is beautiful loser. You just can't have it all. Same thing with the Eagles and, and Desperado. Now there's a, there's a big difference between seeing value in someone's work and being a fan of them. Listen, 
fanboys and fangirls. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't wear my Eagle shirt today. <laughs> if you start dressing like them and you go see them and you're around people that do that and you're emulating them, that's different than a, a appreciating simply in God's common grace what, what people can bring and the talent that they have and what they uh, then can help stimulate in, in your thinking filtered through the grid of biblical truth, which is what I was just, just doing there. So their ability to do that actually illustrates the truth of Romans 1. Remember, Romans 1 teaches all people know God, but they suppress that truth and they don't glorify him as God there, and they're not thankful to him. That is, they're not God-centered all the while that they're borrowing from God. That's exactly what you know the Eagles are doing. That's exactly what Paul Simon's doing. That's exactly what Bob Seger is doing. So something though does not have to be have to have a Christian modifier on it in order to make it useful. Christian music, Christian school, Christian television, on it goes. So this this means that something can be considered worldly at one time but not at another, or maybe worldly in one place but not necessarily in another, since it's expressed in culture. And culture, uh, the meaning of what culture does changes over time, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, you, Pastor Larry, our viewers may be familiar with the peace symbol. I don't see it around very much. Every now and then you'll see the peace symbol, but you guys know what I'm talking about, the circle. And then within the circle, you've got the vertical line, and then you've got these two lines going off of it within the circle, peace. Well, when I was a teen in Christian school, that was said to be a satanic symbol. And to be an upside-down cross with the horizontal beams broken. My wife, she wouldn't mind me saying this, my wife Kim to this day has a really hard time when she sees that symbol because you know, that's what we were, we were taught. Uh, I'm not sure, frankly, whether it ever really meant that. Uh, I don't know of any proof of that. But even if it did, the point is it does not now. Uh, and things can not only have different meanings at different times, but in different locations. What something means here may not mean the same thing in another part of the world, in Europe or something. So the definition of worldliness as fallen values expressed in culture is robust enough to take all of that into consideration. So one of the uh, many questions that this raises is whether Christians can trust non-Christian experts. Um, so from what you've said here, it seems clear that we can, you know, if they have genuine expertise in an area. But many Christians seem to think that it's not the case with regard to scientific questions, for instance. And you and I talked about this recently in an email exchange about a month ago. In fact, we talked about possibly doing an episode based on this. Maybe our next episode will be based on uh, whether or not we can trust experts uh, and the expertise of non-Christians. Yeah, I think uh, that would probably be good. So uh, we'll talk this week about next week's episode, but just a heads up to everybody, that may well be the, the topic, and it'll just flow and build on what we've talked about here. So I think we're about 41 minutes. Uh, any other information you want to share? Do you have any resources this week or any any final comments on this subject then? Uh, you know, other than the book I mentioned by Neil Postman, the amusing mm. ourselves uh, to, to death. And then in terms of culture and Christian appreciation for culture, Francis Schaeffer, uh, the, the late Francis Schaeffer, he wrote a lot about this. Uh, his kind of magnum opus book was How Shall We Then Live? And he gives a whole history of 
Western civilization and Christian influence on it. And you will find, I think, some helpful things about this there. And then he has a little book called Art and the Christian, Art and the Christian, just a very small book uh, about those kinds of uh, cultural issues. So Postman's book, and then just about anything you can read from Schaefer, but especially how should we then live in Art and the Christian? Good. All right. I'll, I'll uh, try to put some links uh, either off to the side or below wherever you're watching this episode uh, and uh, or listening to the episode. So uh, thanks, everybody, for watching with us. Just want to remind you once again, as we usually do, that uh, if you're not already, follow us on Facebook, uh, like this post, share it with your friends. And then as well, uh, if you're watching on YouTube or on our website, you can hit the little YouTube subscribe button there. And uh, on YouTube even, you can hit the little notification bell like you see in the uh, graphic there, and that'll make sure that you get a notification anytime that uh, we have new content come up. Pastor Ken, thanks again for uh, taking the time to walk us through this topic, and uh, everyone will see you next time. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.